Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Gems of History podcast. Just me today. Just me, your host, Jacob Shop. I'm running solo for another solo episode, the second one I've done. So this one is going to be a little different than the first one I did, though. I'm going to try something a little different. So hopefully that works, but we'll see. Uh, Evan is out of town with his fiance. They're celebrating his birthday, checking out their wedding venue and stuff like that. So I hope they're having a fun time out and about. But yeah, you just get me today. And of course, since it's October, we're getting spooky today. But I'm going to do all of the housekeeping stuff right up at the top. So I don't forget to do it at the end. And it just it seems like it might work better. So first of all, with it being spooky season, you still have a couple weeks if you do want to send in your listener stories for our listener story episode. If you want to send in your story, you can send it to gemsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com. It can be a ghost story. It could be an alien story. It could be any spooky story that you want to send us. But yeah, send it to our email, preferably. It's just easier to organize them there. Uh, if you want to follow us on social media, you can do that as well if you want to try and send them there. Uh, t- on X, you can find us gems underscore history. Instagram is gems of history podcast with underscores between each word. Uh, YouTube, t- uh, TikTok, all those places. You can find us everywhere pretty much. So go follow us there. If you want to support us on Patreon, you can do that as well. Just go to patreon.com slash gems of history podcast, or just download the Patreon app and search for the show. And you can so you can sign up on there, subscribe, you get the episodes early, you get them ad-free, all that fun stuff. So I think that's all the plugs I have to do today. So with that being said, I hope you guys are ready to get spooky. Like I said, this is going to be a little different than the first solo episode that I've done. I'm going to try a new kind of style with it. I don't know if we're going to do it going forward, but I wanted to try it for this one. If you guys do like it, maybe we will do more of this going forward, but we'll see. Uh, So without further ado, I present to you my second solo episode, which I'm calling Beneath the Surface. What happens when you die? That question might be one of the oldest thoughts to plague humankind. Since ancient times, people have come up with theories based around that question. For early peoples, it was easy enough to use nature as their lens. After death, we return to that natural cycle. Or perhaps we send our spirits out to appease whatever entity runs the forces of nature that keep us alive. Eventually, though, that lens shifted towards organized religion, with dedicated arenas for every soul, depending on choices that they made during their lifetime. But that's looking at the question from a grand viewpoint. What about looking at the question from a physical and a literal standpoint? What happens to our bodies when the transaction that gave us life is finally voided? For most, it's not as frightening to think about the physical implications when compared to the existential ones. But that wasn't always the case. For centuries, there have been people who are racked with anxiety and fear over that simple question. Some people, like Edgar Allan Poe, had a knack for not only tapping into those fears, but bringing them to life. With themes of death, regret, and lost loves, he captured readers with relatively few words using the new format of the short story. Many likely know Poe due to his short poem called The Raven, But the story that will guide us in exploring our question today is called The Premature Burial. 
The title somewhat gives away the theme, but I'd like to read a passage from the story to really drive the point home. Quote, Fearful indeed the suspicion, but more fearful the doom. It may be asserted without hesitation that no event so terribly well adapted to inspire the supremeness of bodily and of mental distress as is burial before death. The unendurable oppression of the lungs, the stifling fumes from the damp earth, the clinging to the death garments, the rigid embrace of the narrow house, the blackness of the absolute night, the silence like a sea that overwhelms, the unseen but palpable presence of the conqueror worm. These things, with the thought of the air and grass above, with the memory of dear friends who would fly to save us if but informed of our fate, and with the consciousness that of this fate they can never be informed, that our hopeless portion is that of the really dead. These considerations, I say, carry into the heart which still palpitates a degree of appalling and intolerable horror from which the most daring imagination must recoil. End quote. It's clear from this passage that our narrator is afraid, with good reason, of being buried in their grave before their death has arrived. Although published in 1850, this story echoes a human fear that has been around since long before Poe was even born. Taphophobia, the medical term for the fear of being buried alive, is one of those fears that has hidden in the dark recesses of the human mind for centuries, with nobody quite sure where the idea originally came from. But throughout the years, it has affected everyone from the casual civilian to one of the founders of the United States of America. George Washington, on December 14, 1799, while on his deathbed, made sure to relay to his secretary that he wished to remain outside of his tomb for three days after his death to ensure that he was dead before being buried. And he wouldn't be the last to make such a request either. The 18th and 19th century are thought to be, for lack of a better term, the golden age of premature burial fear. Medical advances hadn't given doctors a good enough way to verify bodily death thus leading to misdiagnosed expirations and premature burials. It's understandable that these stories would strike fear into a population when they were read in the newspapers. Dozens, if not hundreds, of stories recount tales of a loved one thought to be dead being buried, only for a passerby to hear their muffled moans from underneath the dirt in the coming days. Some are lucky enough to be rescued, while others are not. But newspapers from the more recent centuries don't begin the narrative. For that, we have to take a trip even further back. As early as 375 BC, the ancient Greek philosopher Plato makes reference to accidental burial when an Armenian soldier named Ur is supposedly killed in battle, but his body doesn't decay for ten full days. When he is put on a funeral pyre, to the surprise of everyone in attendance, Ur revives and is saved. Centuries later, Greek philosopher Galen made certain to emphasize caution when declaring death because certain diseases like asphyxia, coma, and catalepsy could suspend the signs of life temporarily and make someone appear dead even though they have a full chance of recovery. There are multiple mentions of the act of live burial, with one Roman author offering an explanation for delayed internments by stating, quote, why, for no other reason but because we have seen people return to life after they were about to be laid in the grave as dead. End quote. After the various mentions from antiquity, much of the medical knowledge was lost or forgotten in the medieval times. 
But that's not to say there was nothing to continue the narrative of premature burials. A story out of France relays that King Louis IX, otherwise known as Saint Louis, fell ill with some sort of abdominal illness in 1244. After being weakened severely by this sickness, doctors considered him to be dead. However, when the king's body was going through the process of having its last ceremonial mass, his body showed signs of life and he was found to be alive once again. After completely recovering, the king went on to lead a crusade in Egypt. Whether because of this, or perhaps because the legend was once again spreading, there are reports of multiple English aristocrats from around the same time who made requests stating that their bodies were to be left above ground for several weeks after their deaths. It's in this time period, as plague and epidemics spread across Europe, so did tales of deaths unrelated to sickness. Well, perhaps that isn't quite true. Some people would die so quickly from the diseases that were spreading that plague pits were a very common way to dispose of the dead. But every so often, someone not quite dead would end up in the mass of bodies as well. A drunk man thought to be dead on the street may be thrown on the carts and dumped in the pile. One woman had bodies thrown on top of her before she revived the next day, and after spending four days unable to escape from under the weight, she was thankfully rescued when the gravediggers returned with more corpses and noticed her alive. One Dutch physician thinks that these types of accidental burials were more common than we may think due to how quickly the bodies needed to be disposed of. Just one more fear in an environment of misery and death. Once the 17th century arrived, medical observations detailed the narratives in even more unsettling terms. German medical practitioner Christian Friedrich Garman relayed some of the stories and observations that he had made in his 1,200-page tome on death and medicine. Some witnessed bodies being placed in the ground six feet below, but some of these corpses were said to have grown in size, moved, or even wept. Some of them related that hearts were still beating. But most terrifying of all are the tales of corpses whose facial expressions would change and would be heard to laugh. Of course, the stories don't shy away from the gruesome details of those who find graves of those unfortunate souls either. Upon exhuming the graves, victims are found to have ripped out their hair, torn their burial shrouds to pieces, and clawed the inside of the coffin lid in a terrifying struggle to escape their dirt prison. One man, named Lawrence Cawthorn, whose burial was rushed by his landlady so she could inherit his belongings, was heard shrieking and clawing at his coffin by mourners and attendants. When his coffin was opened up, Cawthorn's eyes were swollen, and his brains were beaten out of his head from his attempts to break free. But as I mentioned earlier, the 18th and 19th century were the heyday for talks of premature burial. European countries saw stories spread by anti-premature burial activists, filled with stories rife with gruesome details in order to agitate the fear felt by the public. Particularly popular was the literary motif of the Lady and the Ring. Almost every country had a tale or two of a woman who was pronounced dead prematurely and buried with a nice ring. The grave diggers would then turn into grave robbers and attempt to break into the coffins to steal the lady's ring, only to become her savior when they find the lady is not dead. Some of these grave robbers are too spooked to continue their devilish deeds, but others aren't hindered and finish the job and make the lady's death real. How many of these stories hold as true, and how many are propaganda, is 
anyone's guess. As literacy rates climbed, so did the fear. But the doctors and physicians of the time weren't just sitting on their hands. Medical professionals were attempting to find any new and effective way they could to make sure that their pronouncements of death were accurate. One large institution was mortuaries, or lichen houses. These facilities held corpses for a certain amount of time, which were monitored by attendants to make sure that they weren't actually alive. After a certain amount of time, those bodies were given final tests, or perhaps more accurately, final acts, to ensure that they were truly dead. Some of the more civilized methods were as simple as waiting for decomposition or using smelling salts to try and rouse someone back to life. A mirror could be placed under the nose to check for signs of breath. But some attempts were a bit more grisly. Doctors could be given permission to slice the bottom of the foot or shove pins under toenails, electrocute the corpse, or even cut a finger to try and jolt the deceased back to life. Some doctors even had the duty, and perhaps privilege, depending on who you ask, of using a heart knife to simply stab the body in the heart to ensure that there was no live burial possible. Although there was a plethora of physical methods to test the body itself, sometimes premature burials still happened. To aid someone who may be unfortunate enough to suffer this fate, Engineers went to work and created improved coffins that could aid someone buried alive. Many of these tombs and coffins would be equipped with features like air inlets and a connection to a bell on the surface which could be rung as a signal that someone was alive. More complicated mechanisms involved a pipe attached to a T-shaped handle which extended into the coffin. When turned, that handle would not only turn something on the surface to show bystanders that there was someone alive below but it would also allow air to come through the pipe and into the coffin. Even fancier variations included automated fans that would trigger when the body moved and pass air into the coffin. When the hand was moved, an alarm would also go off and send signals to the surface of life under the ground. Some even included viewing tubes to see the face of the body in the coffin to make doubly sure that it wasn't a fluke that the alarm had been sounded. All of these inventions and advancements helped to eventually quell the fears around premature burials, but despite constant movement forward in the medical field, it hasn't completely gone away. In 2011, a Russian woman collapsed from a heart attack and was declared dead, but awoke at her funeral only days later. She was rushed back to the hospital, but passed away for good only 12 minutes after arriving. Her cause of death was heart failure. Even as recently as 2014, a Mississippi man was pronounced dead and he was put in a body bag and taken to the funeral home. As he was getting prepped in the embalming room, his legs moved and the coroner noticed that he was breathing lightly. He went on to live for another two weeks before passing away for real. Today, it is much more uncommon to hear stories of people being buried alive and historians even contest how many of the stories throughout different time periods are true accounts or simply folklore. Either way, the fear of ending up six feet deep before your time had come very real for many people throughout the centuries. However, taphophobia isn't the only burial fear that various cultures have dealt with for centuries. Sometimes, people were more concerned with making sure that the dead stayed dead in the ground rather than helping them get back to the surface. 
They've gone by many names throughout the years, depending on what part of the world you're in. Strugoi, Revenant, Lamia, Dempier, and many more. But for most people, they're known by one all-encompassing name. Vampires. Of course, most people have an image of what a vampire is almost immediately when they hear the name. Perhaps it's the cloaked, pale, fashionable member of high-class Victorian society who comes out at night and hosts numbers of females in order to drain them of their life. For some, it could be the sparkling high schooler with the skin of a killer from the sensation that was and is Twilight. But almost all of the imagery we associate with vampires or vampires today is actually an invention of more modern forms of media. When Bram Stoker wrote his classic Dracula, he made the titular vampire account. This high-class, wealthy, and attractive variation of an old narrative began to twist the public perception, and in turn, boosted the fascination with a centuries-old monster. However, in reality, the origin of the vampire is quite isolated. What is now a worldwide phenomenon was once situated in the rural backwaters of Eastern Europe. Of course, there have been stories since ancient times of blood-sucking or blood-drinking entities who drain the life of humans as punishment, or simply because they're monsters. But those are blended into the mythologies of the culture, and have less to do with propelling the vampire figure into the subconscious. It's more apt to place the true origin of the vampire in Slavic traditions. Somewhere as early as the 7th to 9th centuries, the beliefs surrounding the vampire came into existence. As Christianity rolled into the Slavic land, it brought with it a change in tradition. Before Christianity, Slavs mostly cremated their dead, following the belief that this helped to release the soul. But when the missionaries converted those same people, Christian burials became much more widespread. To some, this was horrifying. Being stuck in the ground without allowing the soul to escape was unheard of. In an attempt to ease their worries, people began to bury their relatives with their earthly possessions to keep them happy in the afterlife. This practice of grave goods became very popular for a time, but alongside gifts, some also placed large stones on the dead to ensure that they stayed down. According to Christopher Kays, who lectures at Columbia University and has taught on Slavic vampires, quote, In a sense, the first vampire practices are kind of a byproduct. An accident, if you will, an unforeseen outcome of the cultural revolution forced on the Slavs. End quote. Kays even believes the word vampire may have been derived from the Latin word for unclean, impuris. But Slavic vampires were quite different from the Dracula or Nosferatu we know today. At the beginning, Slavic vampires were non-corporeal beings, more similar to a ghost or a poltergeist. They would return to the villages and spread diseases or ruin crops, but they did not suck blood or bite humans. In most cases that have been examined in modern times, it seems that someone who was alive was never identified as a vampire. Rather, those who had died were always the culprit. In areas attacked by plague or host to some other type of misfortune, villagers would look to the recently deceased as somewhere to place their blame. In the cases of plagues, whoever was the first to die from the disease would usually bear the brunt of the guilt. In response, those still living would desecrate the corpse in an effort to stop the spread of disaster. 
corpses would be dismembered, burned, or have stakes driven through them to stave off the bad luck. As gruesome as this prospect is, it's almost strange to think that this is more humane than the treatment of witches would become centuries later. Instead of attacking and killing those who are still alive, vampirism was targeting those who were already dead. Nobody was executed, locked up, or exiled. Simply blame the dead. As time wore on, tradition began to change. People would begin to look for signs of vampirism in the recently deceased. Perhaps your clothing touched the casket during a funeral, which awoke a demon. Or was it the alcoholic who passed away not days before? Even those who had committed suicide were targets, with the superstitious believing that a self-inflicted death excommunicated someone from God and made them susceptible to evil forces. But sometimes it was as simple as a birthmark or a unibrow. In essence, many signs were related to either birth or death. Those transitional times between states of existence were viewed as a period of vulnerability, where impure forces could and would take over someone's soul. Early vampires were simply targeted for being different. These traditions remained highly localized for years. Eventually, vampires became physicalized. It took the form of neighbors, husbands, wives, other family members... These bodies would rise from the grave at night and traipse through the town on a violent errand run. Revenants, as many like to call them in an effort to distinguish them from modern vampires, were, in essence, walking blood fiends. Blood was said to pour out of their eyes, their nose, their mouth, and especially their ears. Some images portrayed them as closer to modern-day zombies than vampires. The body would be swollen and bloated by gases or blood-like fluids. These revenants would attack their loved ones or neighbors and suck their blood, finally dying once they reached a point of exhaustion. In other stories, revenants can be combated by physical means, like beating them with a staff or driving stakes through them. But no matter how they were dealt with, blood was the central focus of the vampire as time wore on. Historically, this makes sense. As the 18th century came about, medicinal practices believed that blood was a vessel of life. Not only that, but the blood was the vessel for the soul as well. This gave the vampire less of a supernatural aura and made it scientific. It made it real. What better way for an undead creature to try and reclaim life in humanity than to imbibe on human blood? In this way, evil forces not only preyed on humanity, but also strengthened their own agency in the earthly realm. As these fears became more and more real, people expanded their practices of making sure that the dead stayed dead. In addition to pinning corpses down with rocks, bodies would be buried with sickles placed across various parts of their body like the throat or the pelvis. Many believe that iron, or any flame-created tool, had anti-demonic properties. Some corpses would be beheaded before burial or placed face down in their coffins to ensure that they couldn't find their way back to the living. Limbs would be bound together or even severed completely, and one modern burial practice may even be a function of early vampire prevention. According to folklore, 
Headstones are a tradition that was introduced to hold vampires below the ground. If the headstone was tilted, that meant that a vampire had gained access to the surface world. And if that happened, vampire hunters would be needed to take care of the wandering entity. Vampire hunters seem to be where a lot of our common beliefs about the weaknesses of vampires come from. Crosses would be carried to ward off evil. Garlic was said to have such a pungent odor that it would overpower the scent of death from a vampire and ward it off. Mallets, stakes, and holy water were almost always brought along to slay vampires. Some hunters even carried pistols as a measure to stop the beasts. Many would carry crowbars or something to get into coffins to find the dwelling places of these vampires. These warriors against the supernatural would venture into graveyards to find and put the dead back into the ground where they belong. While garlic, wooden stakes, and crosses are now a known part of vampire lore, the practices of how to deal with the monsters differed greatly depending on location and changed a lot over time. Many of the burial practices seem to be ordinary burials with added cautionary measures. And who can blame these villagers? No need to take an unnecessary risk. As dozens of books were written and disseminated across the world, these traditions of Eastern Europe spread into mainland Europe and even into the New World. Similar to old European traditions, the United States searched for answers to large catastrophes within the dead. Rife with Puritan ideals and religious fervor, the 19th century in America was no stranger to evil. Salem was the center of one of the most famous witch hysterias in the world, and the superstitions didn't end there. In fact, one of the most famous cases of vampire panic occurred less than 100 miles from Salem, exactly 200 years later. In 1892, tuberculosis, or to use the contemporary name, consumption, was tearing through the United States. As the leading cause of death, people would experience fatigue, night sweats, and the coughing up of white phlegm or even blood before the disease would ultimately end their lives. Doctors were at a loss for how to treat the disease aside from recommending plenty of rest, a good diet, and outdoor exercise. With no real cure, tuberculosis sustained a staggering 80% mortality rate as the 19th century neared its end. In Exeter, Rhode Island, paranoia and unhindered suffering led to a collective madness that targeted one young woman, a young woman who was already dead. When George Brown lost his wife Mary to tuberculosis in 1884, it was just the beginning of his personal tragedy. His oldest daughter would be taken by the same illness two years later. Soon, the Brown family was losing members one by one. George's son, Edwin, took ill in 1891. The next year, Edwin's sister, Mercy Lena, died from tuberculosis when she was just 19 years old. As Edwin struggled and clung to life, George Brown was desperate to save his family from complete extinction. While searching for answers, local townspeople began to whisper to George of an old superstition. By some unexplained and unreasonable way, in some part of the deceased relative's body, live flesh and blood might be found, which is supposed to feed on the living who are in feeble health, the townspeople told George. 
George didn't believe the stories, though. He didn't believe that perhaps his dead family members were the reason for their misfortune. He didn't believe, at least, until his wife and his two daughters' bodies were exhumed from the ground. Two months after his daughter Mercy had passed away, each of the family members that had died of tuberculosis were brought out of the ground to be examined. In the grave of Mary Brown was a skeleton. The same was said of the eldest daughter. But when Mercy Lena's grave was opened, her body looked shockingly untouched. Blood was even said to be found in her heart and liver, just as the folktales had said. In the eyes of the village of Exeter, Mercy Lena Brown was a vampire, and she was leeching the life from the rest of her family. One doctor in town attempted to quell their anxieties by telling them that there was nothing supernatural at work. The body was just buried during the cold winter months. But the townspeople weren't listening. They removed Mercy's heart and liver and burnt them before reburying her. The ashes were then mixed with water and given to Edwin to drink in an effort to save him from the dread disease. Unfortunately, their attempts failed. Edwin died two months afterwards. George Brown's family may have died, but Mercy still lives on in legend to this day. Her legacy is now that of the last New England vampire. To this day, her gravesite is visited by curious onlookers who leave jewelry or plastic vampire teeth in remembrance of her legend. As medical practices advanced, not only did the threat of diseases like tuberculosis decline, but so did belief in supernatural vampires. At least, belief in the revenants of yore. The 19th century brought about the revolution of the vampire, from just scary to scary and attractive. Through stories like The Vampire by John Polidori or Dracula by Bram Stoker, the image of the vampire warped. Although they were drawn from actual folklore, the idea that vampires either stayed in their graves and affected loved ones through magic, or the idea that they actually rose from their graves and attacked the living, wasn't the central tenet of these new vampires. They were aristocratic and sexualized, giving rise to the idea of the vampire kiss on the neck. Popular culture claimed the vampire as its own. Since the medical field advanced enough to provide answers to the previously unknown, belief in real, tangible vampires waned as the 20th century rolled on. People of the Middle Ages and early modern period needed to find explanations for tragedy and disease, and evil abominations were a good answer. Coupled with misunderstandings of human decomposition, it's hard not to see where this belief came from. The skin of a corpse will shrink, exposing the teeth and fingernails, making them appear as though they had grown. When internal organs break down, they allow for dark fluid to expel itself through the nose and mouth. For superstitious townspeople unfamiliar with this process, it's only a small jump to suspect that the fluid might be blood taken from the living. But today, vampires mostly live in books and television. However, to some, they're as real as they have ever been. In 2005, a vampire-slaying ritual was performed on a deceased laborer named Petra Toma in a Romanian village. Six men exhumed his body, staked it, sprinkled it with garlic, 
and opened the chest cavity with a pitchfork. They took out the heart, burnt it, and drank the ashes mixed into a glass of water, eerily reminiscent of Mercy Brown. While this event harkens back to centuries-old practices, some living people today believe that they are true vampires. They don't dress in the capes or have fangs, for the most part. But the belief that blood is necessary for vitality is very true for some of them. New Orleans, Louisiana has a thriving vampire community, and one of the main reasons why people find the lifestyle appealing is just that, community. Being a modern-day vampire is thought by some to be a search for empowerment. By subverting social norms and living in a community of welcoming individuals, it gives them purpose. In a way, these vampires are a perfect example of exposing marginalization in society. Now, some of them do consume blood, but they always find willing donors who have been tested. But many abstain from blood and instead find their power in another way, like sexual experiences or psychic connections. So in a sense, vampirism may indeed be more alive today than ever before. But at the beginning of this episode, the question I posed was, what happens when you die? Throughout history, the answer has covered a vast array of answers. For some, the answer was that you may not actually be dead, but you are sent prematurely to be amongst the corpses anyways. To others, life may not end when you die, but continue on in an unholy desecration of the soul. But whether attempting to save someone from their grave or trying to keep them in it, death has always been a subject of fascination and fear since humanity began. Folklore and religion have attempted to give answers to the burning questions that lurk in the back of everyone's minds. And at the end of the day, it's likely that, due to humans' natural inclination to abhor chaos, we all just want a little stability and agency in not only our lives, but our afterlives, too. Thank you guys for listening to this solo episode of the Gems of History podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys learned something. Let me know what you guys think. Are you scared of being buried alive? Have you ever had the fear of a loved one coming back from the grave and haunting you as a vampire? Are you a vampire? Do we have any vampire listeners? If we do, write in. Let us know about it. But yeah, that is the episode that I am titling Beneath the Surface. It, uh, it's a very interesting topic to uh, get into. I, there's a lot, a lot of stuff that goes into all of these folklores and what we now view as monsters. So I hope you guys find this as, as interesting as I do. Evan should be back next week, so it's not going to be just me. So if you're just a little sick of just hearing me, well, you'll be hearing me and Evan. So a little more contrast. And next week, we'll be going back to our normal format, which if you've been listening for a while, then you'll know is a little more off the cuff, a little more loose than, than this episode, a little less scripted, you could say. But if this is your first time listening, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're looking for more in the style of this episode, sadly, this is kind of the only one we've done this way, but go back and listen to some of the other ones. It's a little loose, loose way to learn some history. So it's a lot of fun. 
Everyone, have a great week this week as we approach the best holiday, in my opinion, Halloween. It's coming up. Only a few more weeks. But, yes, we will be back with more spooky topics. As I mentioned, send in your stories to us so we can read them on the podcast. Let us know if you want to be anonymous. We can also do that. But that's all I got for you guys. Everybody out there, stay polished.